The Athletic. Hello, good to have you with us for another World Cup edition of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. Uh, Very nice to be back in the dugout for the final four episodes of this podcast, World Cup edition. Uh, Thanks very much to Mark Carey for stepping in with some impeccable hosting. It's like you've been doing it your whole life, Mark. How did you enjoy the different role? I tell you what, it's really difficult to host a podcast. I think I absolutely underestimated it. So every time you ask me a question now, I'm going to appreciate just how much hard work (laughs) and thought has gone into it. What's so difficult about it? Am I missing something? What am I not doing that I should be well, doing? <laughs> it's it's not just about asking the questions. You have to, it sounds silly, you have to listen to the response as well, but you've got to stitch it all together. You've got to be the, the conductor, the orchestrator of the whole the whole thing. So uh, yeah, a lot of respect for that. The Sergio Busquets. Yeah. Don't get as much credit as you deserve. Some say, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. Um, I really enjoyed being a listener, I must admit. You, you guys, it turns out, are pretty interesting, I must say, uh, particularly uh, the, the rotations we've had with Liam and with Ahmed as well and, and Michael, uh, who went to so many games on the ground in Qatar. I very much appreciated you guys running in my Japan gut feeling clip after the Germany win, which, of course, was completely usurped by Liam's insane... Australia to win 1-0 with a Mitchell Duke header shout, which is one of the best things I've ever seen. Uh, Michael Cox is, is with us as well. Back in the UK, Michael, a bit of a change of pace from your hectic World Cup schedule. Yeah, it's nice being able to just sit down between the two games and, and watch them both. But uh, enjoy being out there. Really looking forward to the, the business end of the competition now. I think that all the quarterfinals look really exciting to me. Most of the big teams in there, probably only one outsider in Morocco. I think we're going to get some really good games. As someone who who famously and publicly on record hates underdogs, as you do, <laughs> you must be happy with the eight round of 16 games, one upset ratio. That, that seems perfect. Yeah, I mean, look, if underdogs go through because they're really good teams and they play good football, then fantastic. I think what tends to happen is when you get surprises, there's a lot of luck involved, sometimes a team squeezes through undeservedly and then the subsequent game involving them is not particularly interesting. But I wouldn't level all that at Morocco. I thought that was a, it was a nil-nil game, wasn't it? And and went to penalties. I mean, fair enough. But uh, yeah, I tend to think the best knockout stages do have the kind of pre-tournament favourites mm. against one another. I think of 2006 as being a group stage without any real shocks, but then a really memorable knockout stage and 2002 probably the opposite. Here's something neat, uh, a tweet from Nick Goff that I saw this morning. Every World Cup group has at least one quarterfinal representative, except one. And the one, Group E, which had Spain and Germany in, arguably the one that that seemed most likely to, uh, in terms of probability, you'd say. So uh, a nice little quirk flagged up by Nick there. The main focus of today's episode, we're not going to touch on every single round of 16 uh, game. Uh, we are going to mention all of the quarterfinals, which we're looking forward to. The main focus really is on the, the tactics of Brazil, who shone, didn't they, in the first half against South Korea? Four goals in the first 35 minutes or so. Um, I want to ask these guys about how they're playing, why it works so well against South Korea, any weaknesses that there may be uh, as they head into the quarterfinals. We're, we're going to touch on France, Portugal and Argentina as well and check out any similarities and differences in their approach. So let's start broad, Michael. Having had four games to watch and analyse, what are 
the tactics behind Brazil at this World Cup? What's Joga Benito 2022? Well, I think the first thing to comment on is just the composition of the side in terms of the type of players that were involved, because I don't think anyone else is playing anything like as close to Brazil in terms of how attacking they are. They're playing a proper centre-forward, Richarlison. They're playing two wingers on either side. And then they're playing Lucas Paquetá and Neymar in the midfield, essentially. And that's two number 10s. I mean, Neymar probably more of a forward than a number 10. And then, of course, Casemiro just behind. So really, in in what is, I'd say, a relatively defensive world of international football, they are doing something completely different. Um, And how do they get away with it? One, I think Casemiro is a, a very good player in the holding role. But second, when you look at the way that they played in the second round, at times, they played a little bit like Manchester City or like Arsenal are doing at the moment with Danilo, the left-back, coming inside to become an extra central midfielder. Of course, Danilo used to play at Manchester City and briefly played that role. And on the other side, you have Militao, who's very much a centre-back rather than a right-back, and is tucking into a back three. So you end up really with the kind of thing, yeah, the kind of way City play or Arsenal play, three defenders, two holders, and a front five. And that that really is a front five. That's five attacking players. And it's been fantastic to watch. I mean, the football they played in the first half against South Korea, you don't see that kind of football very often at a World Cup. I mean, that was just stunningly good football. I think there's a couple of caveats. One, they had extra rest compared to Korea. I think it's also fair to point out that Korea probably only got through because they were playing a Portugal B team in the in the last group game. But Brazil were absolutely fantastic. And... Uh, yeah, I think so. They started the tournament as favourites and I think so far I've, I've looked the best team by quite a long way. I think on the attacking front as well, it's just so interesting to see, as you say, Pakatar and Neymar is essentially two tens, which then allows Brazil to have the, the attacking line, everyone in a channel, if that makes sense. So you've got obviously the far left, the left half space, the central area, uh, the right half space and the right wing. It essentially allows you to cover the whole sort of width of the pitch and whatever area that they're in, everyone has a, a clearly defined role in different pockets of space, which especially with the the wide players, allowing them to get into isolated positions in a 1v1 rather than necessarily the fullbacks overlapping and almost congesting the space. It's it's a very clear, structured way of attacking. And then as Michael said, when in terms of the rest defence, in terms of keeping that protection with the back five as well, it's just really structured in and out of possession. Mm. I, I find... It's so exciting that we we are talking about a team. Of course we are. Every team that's playing at the elite level in club football or international football is going to have structure, is going to have, um, you know, patterns of play, I guess, would would be a a way of looking at it. Uh, And, you know, you've discussed the the, the fairly fixed positions that the attacking players are taking up. And yet, Michael, the, the, the aesthetics of it still feels fluid, still feels off the cuff. And... I wondered how Chichi is able to achieve this. It strikes me that there's a degree of spontaneity that perhaps other teams who are also have structure in attack, automated teams we might call them, um, really lack. And, and that's something that Brazil have achieved. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know whether I have an explanation for that, but I think that is very much true. A couple of goals they've scored have been... Yeah, sensational bits of individual play. I mean, particularly the Richarlison goal in their first game... I mean, talk about spontaneity. I don't think he even thought he'd do that when he took his first touch um, before the bicycle kick finished. So, yeah, they've just been fantastic to watch. And they are great individuals. I think that's it's a basic thing to say, but there's, there's just not any other side that has five star attacking players like that. 
And, uh, you know, I think four of them got in the, on the score sheet against Korea in the first half. I was kind of willing um, Rafinha on the right to to complete the, the five. But yeah, they've been wonderful to watch. And it's, it's very different to the way Brazil have played at past tournaments. I mean, 2018, maybe they were similar. But 2014 and, and 2010, they're quite defensive, really. I mean, kind of relying on one or two individuals, not that much attacking interplay. So it's been good. It does feel like the old Brazil are back. I think as well as you say, Ali, there is that natural, naturally there's going to be that element of, of spontaneity with the quality of players that they have. But as I mentioned, I think it's very carefully constructed um, in the way that they do it. And I think as we've spoken about before the tournament as well, the wide attackers are obviously so key to their chance creation. So Vinicius Jr. has obviously taken on the responsibility of creating when Neymar was out of the side with his with his injury, even though that third game sort of didn't really count, did it? Um, I looked at the, the shot creating action so far as well. So that is the two previous offensive actions leading to a shot. And um, Rafinha does lead the way with that so far with 19. Then Vinicius Jr. on 14, followed by Rodrigo, who's come on and actually done pretty well with some decent cameos. Um, he's on 11 shot creating actions. So it shows just how much chance creation has, has come from the, the wide areas. I think, as Michael said, there probably needs to be a little bit more end product from Rafinha if we're going to be super critical um, because it's because of the chances and the, the positions that he's got himself into. But yeah, the wide areas are so key, which puts less pressure on Neymar there as well. Uh, just to, to play a bit of devil's advocate, Michael, Brazil only scored three goals in the group stage, drew a blank against Cameroon in the final game. Um, that's significantly fewer than some of the other teams in the tournament. And I wonder if, if you know, given that we're always talking about such a small sample size, you've already alluded to South Korea's perhaps naivety contributing to their own downfall here. They they certainly didn't want to play the role, the classic role of underdogs, did they? Just just bunker in and see what happens. They they allowed Brazil the space to to cut loose. They did, yeah. Um I mean in the group stage I think probably they should have scored more goals than they did. The Cameroon game they played a second string team um because they'd already confirmed uh, their position as group winners. Um so yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's only been half a game so far of fantastic football. But I think in the other games, they've just looked solid. You know, I always say I, I look for clean sheets when it comes to who you think is going to win the tournament. And they've got that, you know, defensive solidity. They've got the two players sitting in front when, when the left back comes inside. And yeah, they've got the attackers who can score goals. They're not going to play as well as they did against Korea uh, for the rest of the tournament. But I think they've got enough to be considered the uh, the favourites for the tournament. And they didn't concede a, a shot on target, I don't think, for the first two games as well, which I think just tells a, a story in itself. The thing that I found really interesting watching the South Korea game was what they were doing out of possession. Uh, and it'd be interesting to hear if, if this has been, in your eyes, the their approach to all four games so far. But to me, it, it seemed like, I'm not even sure if we have a word for whatever the polar opposite of a press is, a high press... <laughs> Because the front four seemed incredibly happy for South Korea to bypass them and carry the ball past them and move it into the midfield area and, and go from there. And it, it basically looks like the opposite of a press, but not no press as in we can't be bothered to press because we only like attacking, but actually a specific strategy to draw South Korea onto them and let South Korea attack and essentially dare them to score a goal, but trust their back four and the midfield two and the goalkeeper to stop them. 
with the reward being some more space in transition for those front four players with skill and speed to really cut loose. I found that visually quite surprising because it's not the sort of thing you'd see at club level. Yeah, I hadn't really considered that. I'm going to... So we talking about the first half yesterday when they scored the goals? Yeah, yeah, pretty okay. much. I'm going to go back and watch that first half. I hadn't really considered that, I must say. It, it was something that I noticed first watching France against Poland, where, again, it, it, it felt like it was so purposeful as to be a strategy to, to then allow Mbappe, basically, to do what he does best, which is run 1v1 in space. And, and having seen it, or at least thought I'd seen it with France, I then watched Brazil. And again, it felt like, you know, these attacking players, they're, they're just waving South Korea through. They're daring them to attack them because they know that that's, that's going to, you know, all being well, Casemiro doing his job, going to give them more space to attack. You know, a, a, a press like that or a lack of press like that would bring me out in hives if we were talking about elite club football. <laughs> it's the sort of thing we've said PSG have struggled because they've almost refused to press at times in the last few years, and that's cost them in Champions League group stages. And I just thought I saw a flicker of that with Brazil uh, and with France, but it, you know, it might be that they can only do that, Michael, against an opposition where they have a significant talent advantage. What do you think Croatia might offer uh, different to South Korea in the quarterfinal? Well, fair to say they'll they'll hold the ball better. Um, they dominate the centre of the pitch very well, Croatia. I think they're very slow. It must be said, I don't think they've got any pace in the team whatsoever. And I think two of the problem positions they've got are centre forward and on the right. I just don't think they have the, the quality there to to really do enough damage. But in terms of the central midfield three, probably the best in the tournament, I would say, or, or, or pretty close to it. So, yeah, whether Brazil can afford to be as, um, as passive without the ball, as you suggest, uh, is very doubtful. In terms of the matchup then, do you think it almost plays perfectly in terms of Brazil being so strong in those wide areas? So they could almost bypass the centre of the pitch where Croatia's strength is and just get the ball into those wide areas as quickly as possible to not allow Croatia to even sort of play their game. Because I think that's something that going back to probably the 2018 World Cup with Croatia is that they might go a goal down. We saw it with with England as well. They might go a goal down, but eventually they'll get enough of their central midfielders on the ball and they'll almost have that kind of they'll win that war of attrition where they'll just keep knocking it around. Whereas, yeah, if you allow them to do that, then eventually they might sort of create a, a chance or a goal. But if they just completely bypass that with the strength that that Brazil have in in the half spaces and the wide areas, then then it could just completely you know overcome Croatia's key strength. Yeah, I was sitting here wondering whether Croatia have the attackers to hurt Brazil and or the defence to stifle them. And, and Michael, it seems like actually it's in the midfield where their strength lies and that and that for this matchup might not be the best place to have your your key strength. I don't know, because it it seems unlikely that Croatia are going to dominate possession and let Modric and Kovacic dictate the play. Uh, it, it's, it's difficult to predict, from my perspective, a way that Croatia could really hurt Brazil. How, how could you more broadly see Brazil being beaten? How could you see the way that they're playing being matched uh, and then bettered? Maybe some counter-attacking, maybe some pace against the, the centre of Brazil's defence. I don't think their fullbacks are top-class fullbacks. I think they're playing certain roles, but maybe in one-against-one situations, you can get the better of them. I mean, the last point I would say is set-pieces. I mean, Brazil haven't looked weak at set-pieces so far, but I did an article on The Athletic, I think four days ago, 
where I pointed out that going into the knockout stage, Brazil being the favourites of the last seven World Cups, which is extraordinary, really. They've won two of them. And in the other five, it's been set pieces, really, that has cost them. So the goal that they've gone behind to, 98, Zidane, two headers in the final. 2006, Henri Volley uh, in the quarterfinal. 2010, Netherlands winner came from a, a uh, Wesley Schneider header. Um, 2014, obviously, they conceded seven, but the first of them was a, a Thomas Muller goal from a corner. And then 2018, when they lost to Belgium, was a Fernandinho own goal. So you can tell that <laughs> I think Tite is a bit nervous about set pieces because when you look at the way that they're set up, they're incredibly zonal in one particular position, kind of near post area along the edge of the six-yard uh, box. Like I say, so far they've looked okay on, on set pieces. But if we're talking historically, that is the area where they tend to come unstuck. Okay. And is this, you know, you mentioned Chichi there, is is this, is the way that they're playing classically in the mould of the manager? Or does this feel like a, a new approach from him in order to get the best out of the players at his disposal? I mean, I think he's always been adventurous and he's someone who's always kind of looked to European football for his influence, which hasn't always been the case for, for Brazilian football. But I think actually, you know, loading up on attacking players to this extent is pretty rare. I mean, you'd always have two holding midfielders really with a Brazilian team. Um, and from what I gather with, with Tito's previous teams. So no, this does feel like uh, something slightly new. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. And Brazil through the cheekiest possible penalty. Lead by two. I suppose if you're looking for a personality type of the team uh, and one individual in particular, the, the the dancing and the attacking play, it actually, Mark, feels quite in the image of Neymar, the, the star man and, and Chiche perhaps really leaning into him as the star and the talisman, both in terms of his footballing personality and his general personality as well. Chichi doing a little jig on the sideline as well was, I couldn't believe it. I genuinely couldn't believe it. But that's that's the vibe at the moment. Yeah, Roy Keane wasn't too happy about that, was he, with the old pigeon dance and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I think with Neymar, I think he's obviously so well-respected and it looks like this might be his his final World Cup. So it feels a little bit like the the whole do it for Messi campaign with, with Argentina in terms of getting that World Cup for him. But I think that Brazil feel, as we've spoken about, they feel far more like a, a team than ever before, where it was probably previously the the Neymar show in, in tournaments. Um, it, you know, in all tournaments gone by, not just the World Cup. Um, but as we've spoken about, there's so much more to the way that Brazil play. But, you know, he is only one goal away from equaling Pele's record. So there's the obvious star status throughout all of his career anyway. Um, I think, as we mentioned again before, Vinicius Jr. has, has stepped up really well. Rafinha so, so well. So I think with those, not even foils, they are just fantastic players in wide areas. I think that Neymar couldn't play the way that he plays now without them as well rather than it just be get the ball to Neymar he is the undoubtedly the best player yeah. which is quite common for a lot of international countries so um, I think it's testament to the whole team and Neymar is just 
kind of now the, the cherry on top, if that makes sense. Mm, well, I mean, over the four games so far, there's probably a case to be made for Casemiro being their, their most important player, certainly the glue that holds them together, given the overloading of, of attacking players that Michael's spoken about. Ahmed Walid certainly uh, agrees with this, as he explains. I think Casemiro is one of the less talked about players in this Brazil team for the obvious reasons with the names of Pront from Neymar to Vinny to Rafinha to Richarlison. If we saw in the Serbia game in the first half, Brazil didn't have like any solutions to break down Serbia, but uh, Casemiro were trying all these progressive passes and in the center of the pitch, he won many balls and this helps Brazil just maintain the possession. And we also saw in, in this game and in the Switzerland game, that the pressing of Brazil is not perfect. He just wins important balls in the center of the pitch that either regain Brazil, uh, the possession, or help in transitions. And when you've got like Vinny, Richarlison, and Rafinha on the transition, it's good to have a great ball winner in Casemiro in the center of the pitch. And it's Casemiro! A thumping finish! We saw his, his important goal against Switzerland. Like, it's arguable that if he didn't get that goal, that game could have ended nil-nil because Brazil, for the most part of the game, didn't manage to break down Switzerland. So I think Casemiro is one of the Brazil players that's going under the radar, but he's having huge, important performances in, in this Brazil team. So, Michael, Casemiro is looking to add a, a World Cup to his five Champions League trophies. Um, his level of performance in the last two and a half weeks has been absolutely sensational. Yeah, he's been really good. I do wonder whether they'll stick with the same team throughout the knockout stage. It is just really attacking. And in 2002 and 2006, Brazil decided to bring in an extra holding midfielder once they got to the business end of the competition. So I wonder whether the same thing will happen again. They do have players. I mean, Fabinho, Bruno Guimaraes. They've got lots of options in the centre of midfield. Fred as well is is someone who, who plays quite a lot. Um, so yeah, I do. I do think there is a chance they make a slight negative shift. And who, who would be most likely to be sacrificed there? It's hard to work it out in the front four, isn't it? Richarlison, the done so well as a nine. Vinny on the left has been incredible. It allows Neymar to have the free role, uh, and Rafinha on the right, as Marcus said, has been highly effective as well. So who, who would you guess a Fabinho, a Fred, a Bruno Guimaraes would come in for? Well, I guess Pakatar would be the right, maybe the one in danger. I think there's also a, a case that Neymar's not going to be dropped, but I don't know whether he's going to play 90 minutes very much because of fitness issues. Um, so yeah, maybe it will be a mid-game shift, but I, I can't see Brazil being quite this attacking for throughout the games that are, are coming up. Well, let's see if they take the game to, to Croatia in the same manner as they did South Korea. How similar are France to Brazil? tactically, Michael. We're going to see them take on England on Saturday night. Um, as I mentioned, I feel like I've seen a similarity out of possession with a sort of happiness or an acceptance of the other team building into midfield and beyond in order for that reward of, of space in transition or more space in transition. Uh, have you noticed any similarities in that sense? Uh, and, and in an attacking sense, you know, four very attack-minded players... Uh, at the top, maybe one more slightly more defensive-minded midfielder. 
Yeah, uh, let's talk about what they do going forward because I think that's quite interesting. Um, it's been notable so far that there haven't been a huge number of dribbles in this tournament. When you look at the numbers compared to four years ago, four and a half years ago, they're, they're down a little bit. In fact, quite significantly. I think it was down by a third after the group stage. I haven't seen the updated numbers. But France are an outlier. I mean, they've got two players on the flanks who are just constantly taking on opponents. Uh, Mbappe and Dembélé, I think they do it in a bit of a different way from one another. Mbappe kind of more about just using his speed to burst in behind Dembélé, maybe slightly more tricky. But they've got players who can beat opponents. And that is relatively rare in this competition. Although I think you're right in the sense that Brazil also have two players out wide who can dribble. Um, Giroud, we know about. He's playing the role that he always does, pretty much. I think the interesting one is Griezmann, who I think four years ago was very much the third attacker because you had Matuidi tucking in from wide midfield, whereas now you've got the three attackers spread across the pitch. And Griezmann at times is playing as a midfielder. I mean, for Atletico as well this season, obviously he had that weird thing where he was coming on for half an hour at a time because of a contractual dispute. But he was often coming on as a midfield player. And, you know, that number 10 role is always part attacker, part midfielder. But at the moment, I think he's more midfielder than attacker. And I think he's played that role really well, actually. Just to kind of yeah dovetail with the the in possession stuff, I think the out possession side of things is slightly different to Brazil. I think to me, we mentioned PSG before, it is a little bit like that where you're not as likely to get Mbappe sprinting back and, and getting into shape. So the rest of the team do have to plug gaps a little bit more to to cover for him. And I think Griezmann, as Michael says, does really well there as well as being on the ball. I think he covers really well out possession. Rabio pulls across to the left-hand side, then Chiumeni and uh, Griezmann sort of tuck in a little bit and, and Dembele pulls back a little bit more. And they're more of a 4-4-2 out of possession where Mbappe and, and Giroud are kind of up against each other. And it, it feeds into what you said before, Ali, where it, again, as the, as the fullback for the opponent, do you stick or twist? Do you start to just edge a little bit closer knowing that at the best of times, Mbappe can just, you know, his blistering speed can just do you on the, on the transition anyway. I looked at their PPDA as well. It's 16.6, which puts them in the bottom half for pressing intensity across the, the teams who have qualified for the last 16 as well. So it does kind of feed into what you're seeing, Ali, which is not necessarily they are just harem scarem, get at the, the opposition as soon as they lose it. Mm. Um, so it, it certainly passes the eye test. But I think, yeah, out of possession is really interesting as well because they fall back into more of a 4-4-2. Yeah, that that Griezmann role is really interesting, isn't it? And and somewhat surprising, perhaps. I, I I would have wondered before the tournament, Michael, how Griezmann and Giroud playing together would would dovetail, would combine, and whether it it might be worth having one or the other. Um, but so far, so good on on that front. Both playing really, really well. If you look at the average touch maps of this team, it almost looks like they're basically playing two false nines because Giroud and Griezmann's touches come so deep in comparison to the wide forwards. It's it, Visually, it's it's very, very interesting. Uh, in terms of the quarterfinal match against England on Saturday night, do we broadly know how France will set up the starting 11 that Deschamps will choose uh, and their style? C- can you envisage any surprises? I don't think there'll be any major shifts, no. I think the side that works well so far is pretty much what they'll use. They also don't have that many options, really. I mean, because of injuries, they've been deprived of some players um, who would be options. And I think England have more depth than France, probably more tactical options. Um, but that might not be a bad thing for France. I think they're, they're playing well at the moment. 
And uh, yeah, I expect Deschamps to uh, to stick with what he's done so far. I think on, on the note of Giroud, it's been said multiple times before, but it was just highlighted so well against Poland that he is such a great foil for Mbappe. And I think it was the first Mbappe goal where he just brought it down out of the sky, played it across, played it wide. And it was the run across the defenders that just opened up the space for Mbappe. So I think that as much as we know that Mbappe is the threat and you know, we speak about, I'm sure we'll discuss whether England should go to a, a five at the back, three at the back. And you think about Mbappe being that that key reason as to why. But I think would it also allow to have a central centre-back, allow someone to go with Giroud, who's going to be dropping in and actually allow you to kind of get tight to him to stop him being the another one of the, the, the players that stitches it all together from, from an attacking perspective. So, yeah, I'm sure we can come on to how England will set up, but I think stopping Giroud can also be just as crucial as as stopping Mbappe. That's exactly what we're going to come on to, Mark. So (laughs) if we can be fairly sure how Deschamps will approach this one, uh, the the question for Southgate, Michael, is a big one. It's a pretty fascinating one. Uh, So far, England haven't played a back three in this tournament, but they haven't had a match like this, have they? You've written... In the last week or so, when Southgate has had a dilemma between two approaches, he tends to opt for the more cautious of the two. Are you predicting a back three for England? I think there's a good chance of it. I must say at the Euros, I didn't really understand the the decision-making with Southgate when he played a back five and when he played a back four. I thought in the semi-final that was a back five game against Denmark to match them, and he did the opposite. And then I thought he could have been quite bold in the final against Italy and played a back four with Saka on the right, and he went for the back five. So I don't know, really. I think he would also be a little bit unsure of which midfielder to leave out if he was going to play, you know, five, two, three, essentially, because Henderson uh, played really well um, against Senegal. Bellingham, you obviously can't leave out. And Declan Rice is the holding player. So, I mean, there's a few decisions to make. Would he consider a five-three-two? I'm not quite sure which player would play off Kane in that situation. It would have to be Foden, I suppose. Um, so I don't know what system he's going to play. Maybe he will stick with with the approach that he used against Senegal because it did work pretty well. And that will ask a lot of Kyle Walker against Mbappe in that individual battle, um, which is why I think he might want extra protection with a fifth defender in there. Um, but yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Like, like I say, I, I think he's quite difficult to read Southgate. In terms of what he, in terms of his formation, but this is a huge, huge game for him, isn't it? I mean, it seems ridiculous on the one hand to be still questioning and and laying down the gauntlet to the manager that has won the most major tournament games uh, as an England manager in their history, and yet both in terms of tactically uh, which approach he takes and how effective it is, which is something that we've questioned uh, Southgate for a few times on this podcast in the past, it's also the level of opposition that England are playing against. If you look at the the last, well, this tournament and the, and the previous two, the World Cup in 2018 and the Euros last summer, in games against, let's call them the, the big teams, right? Southgate and England's record isn't that great. I think I think what's been very established is that England are very, very good at winning games that they should win, that they are favoured to win. And that shouldn't be sniffed at because that wasn't always the case before. But on this level, it's a bit more up in the air, isn't it? I'd say we're the, the win against Germany in the Euros, the draw against Italy in the final, we'll call it a draw, 
uh, and then defeat to Belgium twice in World Cup 2018. We'll leave out the third place playoff because who cares? But lost in the group stages, of course, and lost to Croatia uh, in the semi-final as well. So this, in a number of ways, is is just a monstrous game for Gareth Southgate. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm doing an article along similar lines, so I'm uh, about to explore that in terms of world rankings and stuff. But yeah, you're right. England, generally, things go to form. If England lose to France, it won't be a disgrace. I think it's fair to say. They're the defending champions. They're one of the favourites. Um, and I, start, I think I start this game as favourites. But yeah, it would be. If England were to win... I think it'd be difficult to criticise Southgate, not just on the basis of this tournament, but his whole tenure, really. I think if you get past France, you get to the semi-finals, and that's three times in a row you get to at least the semis. That's pretty good going. I think as well, the only thing to add is that France have a devastating team, a devastating squad at the moment. But as we mentioned before, if ever there was going to be maybe a glimmer of hope against the the world champions, they do have a lot of injuries. And yeah, as I say, while they do have a really strong team, Michael mentioned they don't have that much strength in depth. So if England can nullify them and then maybe even bring on their own substitutions or take the game to France, you think if ever there was a time, um, it could be, could be now. I can feel myself getting a bit too excited. Before we go, I want to add Argentina and Portugal into this conversation as well. Michael, to what extent, starting with Argentina, can we bunch them in stylistically with with Brazil and, and with France in, in terms of their pressing out of possession, uh, but also in terms of their, their attacking approach? I think they're quite different in terms of their attacking approach. Not that much natural width. I mean, not proper wingers. I do think they're playing a slightly different style of football to the other teams. When I saw them live, I was surprised how aggressive they were. I mean, just big tackles from quite physical players. I thought it was really interesting that when Papu Gomez went off injured early in the second half against Australia... um, they immediately, they immediately brought on Lisandro Martinez as a third centre-back and switched to a 5-3-2. I just thought that was an incredibly defensive move against the sides they're already 1-0 up against and who aren't going to dominate possession. Um, so, I, yeah, I just think they're quite a kind of functional, do-the-job side Argentina. I don't think of them in the same way as Brazil. I don't really think of them in the same way as France. I think they're a little bit old school. I, I can imagine this Argentina side playing in... World Cup 1990 or something like that. They just feel like a bit of a throwback to me. I mean, I completely agree with the what you said, Michael, about the the natural width, which was really quite frustrating to watch, I think, for Argentina in the first couple of games where they were naturally, when you obviously get Messi on the ball, but it was with Di Maria as well at times, just naturally kind of funneling into more central spaces to try and play those kind of cute through balls. And I just don't think that's going to work against the Netherlands, who, as we know, set up with a, a back three. So you think that width might be key to be get, you know, get around them. Um, so, yeah, their natural width, I think, or lack of natural width could uh, could maybe be an issue against the Netherlands. The, the forwards not named Messi uh, in the last game, Alvarez and, and Gomez, it, it is very notable how narrow they like to attack. And it means that, you know, without fullbacks that I think are massively attacking... If you just look at the the average touch map, for example, it, it's quite unusual that the outside central midfielders, uh, McAllister and Rodrigo de Paul, are on average wider than any of the front three. Obviously, Messi's the centre of it all and then Gomez and Alvarez. So that'd be something to watch for sure. Uh, Michael, you wrote about Netherlands being unique in this tournament in the way that they play. Um, what does that mean? Why is that? Uh, and what might it look like against Argentina? LVG, Van Gaal 
very happy to say that you know it was his game plan against the USA that he felt won them that game, uh, and USA failing to adapt to it. So might he might he come up with a new one for for this game? Probably the same game plan and the same game plan he used in 2014. Um, they man mark in midfield. I mean the three midfielders just follow their opponents around all over the pitch. When the USA rotated positions, the Dutch players just followed them. They pretty much man mark at the back, which leads to a, a very disjointed backline, I suppose. I mean, sometimes you just get Nathan Ake 15 yards behind the other two players, which just looks very strange. And of course, they attack through the wing backs, really. I mean, the, the front, there's two approaches. The front two have got pace and they stay in position to counter attack in behind the full backs and get ready to just receive passes and speed forward. And then there's the wingbacks. Obviously, Denzel Dumfries played a part in all three goals against the US, and two of them came from exchanging passes with uh, Daly Blind, the wingback on the far side. So it's it's very um, it's very on paper, if, if you know what I mean. There's not spontaneity like with Brazil. There's not unpredictability. I think we know exactly how they're going to play. I think Lionel Scaloni will know exactly how they're going to play, but coming up with a plan to beat it seems surprisingly difficult. I mean, they didn't lose at the last World Cup. They went out to Argentina on penalties in the semi-final. A pretty bad game, I must say. A nil-nil that seemed to go on for absolutely ages. Um, So I hope this game will be better, but I'm not sure it will be. And what about Portugal? You know, the the biggest winners in the... uh... In the round of 16, 6-1 winners, in fact. And, of course, the the big change that may or may not have impacted that was swapping out Cristiano Ronaldo for hat-trick hero Ramos. Michael, does that unlock a whole new level to Portugal? Or is was that just the perfect storm last night? A bit of both. I mean, I almost feel a bit sorry for Ronaldo. They've gone from looking kind of quite underwhelming to looking like the best team you've ever seen just by switching the striker, which is a little bit harsh on him. But they did look better. I mean, it reminded me of Portugal kind of 20 years ago, probably Euro 2000 or something, where they were always renowned as a team who had a a good striker who was quite selfless and had good movement and there was interchanging positions behind him. It, It was a completely different style of football. And it wasn't just him. You know, other players looked happier. I thought Bernardo Silva was very good. Bruno Fernandes. I mean, the funny thing is there's still not, an obvious answer to the question of how you play both of them in the best positions. I mean, Fernandes spending a lot of time out on the right, which isn't his best position, but he has had a good tournament. And they they still have Rafael Leal in reserve to come from the bench. And and he's been a brilliant super sub so far in this tournament because Joao Felix is, is starting from the left and he was another one who looked very good last night. So it's going to be a different challenge against Morocco, isn't it? They, Morocco play deep. Portugal will have a lot of possession. They'll probably have the ball out wide a lot. I think it probably suits Ronaldo more this game, but I can't see him coming back into the side after what happened last night. I mean, yeah, I agree. I, I think Fernando Santos said after the game that the the front line in particular, but the whole team really were fluid. And I think that sort of way of describing it is really accurate, which isn't necessarily the case when Ronaldo is playing, where he's a bit more fixed uh, in his in his actions, shall we say. But I completely agree with Michael in the sense that, yeah, Morocco will be such... They'll be so much more defensively organised. I did think Switzerland, for as good as Portugal were, Switzerland were so, so bad. I thought, I know that I think they've had some uh, illness issues in the camp or whatever, but 
they just were so open to allow Portugal to attack and just wave after wave of attack. And I don't think it'll be the, the same against Morocco. The way that Morocco defended against Spain as well, just so defensively organised, which again, yeah, as Michael said, lends itself more to getting into wide areas and, and crossing the ball in and and maybe going round the defensive block. So um, yeah, <laughs> maybe that Ronaldo is perfect for it. Michael, does Fernando Santos maybe deserve a, a, a bit of credit? I feel like pre-tournament, a lot of the discussion was on a fairly turgid style of play that was to be expected. Uh, it hasn't really been the case. Portugal have scored in every game. Uh, they've scored 12 goals in their four games. They've looked pretty exciting at times. Um, does does Santos, you know, would he be right to ask for a, for a little more love? Yeah, definitely. It's a big decision to drop Ronaldo. I mean, we can say in hindsight that it's obvious and that the team played better. And I think in purely tactical terms, it was, you know, the right switch to make. But... You know, the status he has within that squad and the status he has within the country, if Portugal had lost that game, I mean, people would be talking about this for decades, really. I mean, leaving out your all-time greatest player for a World Cup knockout game. I mean, he, you know, he would have been a a villain for years to come, despite the fact he's obviously taken them to success in 2016. So, yeah, it's a really big call. And it, and it paid off. I think he um, he got it right. Yeah, I'm sure he'll stick with a pretty similar approach going forward. Got to say as well, Gonzalo Ramos, someone that we spoke about on this podcast a few weeks ago for how well he was doing for Benfica, mm. also included in the radar as well. So uh, we called it as a team. Well done. A real radar win there. Yeah, I, I think I just, I have a sense that Portugal, out of, let's say, the eight pre-tournament favourites, I have a sense that Portugal are the ones who, at this stage, after four games, feel like they've been better than the expectation level and and looked different and I I've got a pretty good sense a pretty pretty good feeling about them I must say uh, based on what we've seen so far um, well it's been great to, to chat through various topics with you guys it's great to be back with you I'm looking forward to the next podcast because we've got some interesting quarterfinals some that are quite difficult to call in particular England against France and Netherlands against Argentina as you've discussed in the other two Croatia against Brazil and Portugal against Morocco there will be a heavy favourite we'll wait and see what happens we'll talk about it next time in-depth reviews of the quarterfinals and of course a big semi-final preview as well on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast make sure that you're reading everything on site at the moment so much good stuff the World Cup has been covered in every possible way, from every possible angle on The Athletic. And you can sign up and pay just £2 or $2 per month for the first 12 months of your subscription. So sign up to The Athletic at theathletic.com forward slash tactics to get that offer. £2 or $2 a month for 12 months. Don't miss out. Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics and join us again in just a few days. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast feed. You'll get each episode as soon as they drop. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk again soon. The Athletic.